Well, well uh, good morning, everyone. Uh, my name's Taylor, in case uh, you didn't catch that from Bill, and I haven't met you yet, and uh, if that's the case, you know, I'd love to. But uh, we're, like Bill said, we're going to be starting uh, four weeks or so where we're going to be looking at these episodes in the life of Jesus, kind of tapping into our meta theme for the fall here, which is building passion for compassion. And uh, we're going to start with Matthew chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. This is one episode in the life of Jesus that we're going to hone in on. So if you've got your own Bible or device you want to pull that up on, you can go ahead and uh, do that now. I'll uh, read out loud. Uh, you can read along with me, or if you prefer, just to listen and hear. That is perfectly fine, as James will frequently remind us of. That is the way that most people initially encountered the scriptures at their writing. And so maybe we could join in as well. But it's helpful to read, so you can read along too. Uh, Matthew chapter 8, verses 1 to 4. I'll read, uh, and then I'll pray, and uh, just as a, a way more even guiding us to pray, to ask God to speak to us personally, uh, inviting the Lord to minister to us personally this morning. So uh, Matthew chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. I listen and read along as I read out loud. Here's what the text says. When he, that's Jesus, came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt down before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priests, and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. That's God's word for us this morning. It's written by the gospel writer Matthew in his own language and style, cultural context, but it's inspired by the spirit of God. And every time we open up God's word, he has something to say to us. So let's pray right now. And in fact, I'll guide us just through some time of personal prayer to ask God to speak to us with wherever we're coming at uh, this morning. So would you guys uh, pray with me as I, as I guide us through? So Lord, we love you. Uh, we're so grateful for your grace. Grateful that you speak and uh, that you love every single person in this room. Uh, you love us each uh, individually. You know us. You know us even better than we know ourselves, and you invite us into relationship with you. And God, I pray that wherever we're coming from this morning, uh, whether we've been walking with you for a long time, we know your grace personally, or whether uh, this is all new to us and we're just processing, maybe we don't even believe it yet. I pray that every single one of us would have a fresh word from you, would you speak to us, Holy Spirit, as we look at your word? And we pray that uh, you would not just give us information for our heads, but transformation in our hearts as we encounter you uh, to become the kind of women and men that you always made us to be. So right now, let's just take a moment in the quiet of our own heart. Whatever words feel natural and make sense to us, let's each just say, Lord, would you speak to me right now? God, would you speak? So let's just have a moment now where we each kind of quiet our own hearts and ask God, to speak to us. Lord, we do pray that you'd speak. And uh, thank you that we can come to you completely honest with you because your grace makes it safe to do so. We love you. Uh, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, let me set 
this scene for you. This was uh, about a year ago, a little over a year ago, and I was getting together with a group of friends to celebrate a really good friend of mine, a friend of mine that's been friend, a friend of mine for many, many years. And we're getting together. We've got a late dinner reservation, and so before we have dinner, we're all getting together. Everyone's kind of trickling in after uh, what they'd been up to that day, uh, and we're meeting at this rooftop lounge, just kind of waiting for our, our reservation to come. We have a couple hours just to kind of chill, hang out, catch up. A lot of us hadn't seen any, each other in a long time. And for context, this is a group of about 15 people or so, uh, and in this group of 15, there's maybe two or three Christians. I'm one of them. So a group predominantly of people that don't know Jesus yet. Uh, we're just kind of catching up. Like I said, many of us haven't seen each other in a while, and this is a group of people, mostly not Christians. Now, what's interesting about friends of mine who are not yet followers of Jesus is there's a wide range of experiences or perspectives that they have on me being a pastor, like what it means for the friendship that I'm a pastor and how they experience that reality. Some of them, it's not for them, they don't, they don't believe any, any of this Christian stuff you know, not their cup of tea, but they think it's great. It's like, Taylor, you're like a community leader, organizer, rallyer. You do something good for the world, like good for you, attaboy, pat on the butt, be on your way. Some, uh, if you were to give them truth serum and have them be fully honest, they would tell you, this is pretty weird. Like, Taylor's, what, what a shame. What a shame. He seems like a perfectly normal-ish kind of guy. Like, how could he get caught up in this stuff? And more, more than that, how could he actually be one of the guys leading the thing? Like, this is, it's a little weird, to be honest. Great guy, but that's a part of him that we have to kind of ignore or at least not go there with our friendship. Others, and I don't know what this says about me as a person, but this is my favorite. Uh, they, I, the way that they would experience it, I, was just, I would describe as they would find it amusing. And not amusing in like a belittling, insulting kind of way, not like making fun. It's just for, for these friends of mine, following Jesus, the church, being a pastor is so foreign to them. I mean, for some of them, I'm literally the only Christian they know. And so it's, this is so foreign to them that it's just like funny. Like how did I get in a, how did I wind up in a place in life where one of my friends is not just a Christian, he's, he's a pastor. Like this is like, I don't even know what to do with this. It's just kind of funny that we're at this place in life. They find it amusing. Okay, so one of my friends who's in the amusing camp, he and I are sitting next to each other and he has some friends from work who work in a different office, but they're in town and in, in the local office working for a week or so and kind of playing tourist while they're there. They happen to be in the same neighborhood where we were. And so he invited them, uh, two, two women and a man, to come and join us, hang out for a little bit, uh, just you know, real quick before we go off on our way. And so they come, they join us at the, at the rooftop where we're hanging out, sit down across from me and my friend and a couple others who are sitting around this one particular little seating area, and they're telling us about their day. And that afternoon, they had gone to a museum, and the main exhibit, kind of the featured exhibit for that season at the museum they went to was medieval Christian iconography. So medieval Christian art. And they're telling us how they went to this exhibit. They have no context for me, who I am, anything about me. And they're telling us about their day at the museum, and I asked them, what'd you think? And without missing a beat, one of the women, a, a younger gal in kind of late 20s, uh, young professional type, without missing a beat, looks at us and says, Ugh, Christianity is so uninspiring. Now, she doesn't know anything about me. 
honestly, I was thrilled. I was like, oh, honesty, this is gonna be a great conversation. That's my sincere response. My buddy who thinks it's amusing that I'm a Christian, this just tickles him pink. He thinks this is the funniest thing in the world that she's gotten in herself in this situation. There is no situation. He thinks it's a situation though. He thinks this is hilarious. He starts cracking up with no context for anybody about why he's cracking up, although I can make a few guesses about why he's cracking up, even though I'm not uncomfortable at all. He assumes this is all a very uncomfortable situation. He's laughing, laughing his head off, all of a sudden throws, before I can even get a word in, throws his arms around me, points at her, and says, this guy works for the church! And she, like, her face just went ashen, you know, like, what have I done? I've just insulted someone's belief system, oh my gosh. And there was nothing, there was no insult at all. I, this was a perfectly sincere, honest reaction to a question about what you thought about the art exhibit you had just seen. And I was actually really excited for an honest conversation. But it's become this comedy of errors where she feels like she's some, done something terribly wrong. My buddy's treating her as if she's done something terribly wrong. I don't think she's done something terribly wrong. But he's laughing his head off, so I can't get a word in edgewise. And it's just, the situation's just becoming more and more awkward. And so finally, get my body to be chill, calm the heck down. No, that's not offensive. I'd love to hear your thoughts, yada, yada, yada. We end up having a great conversation. The bottom line is this. Though this woman did have intellectual questions about faith, there were some hangups that she had about the truthfulness of Christianity. Her main issue with the Christian message that she had heard to that point in her life was not that she found it rationally unconvincing. It was that she found it personally uncompelling. It was uninspiring. And the thing is, Experience tells me that wherever you are following Jesus this morning, whether you've been following Jesus for a long time or all this stuff is brand new, experience tells me that her feeling, that this just all seems personally uncompelling, true or not, I don't know that I see the relevance of it. I don't know that I'm moved by it, not really. That feeling, for many of us, is something that's true to the heart. You know, some of us, I just want to say, if you're here this morning and are you watching this online and that's you, you're like, I don't, I, I don't believe any of this stuff and I don't really see the relevance of it. I want to say you're so welcome here. This is a place to work through that, to ask hard questions, to dig in, to wrestle with things. There's no question off the table. There's no issue you could have that's off limits to talk about. This is a safe place to wrestle through that stuff. And for others of us, experience shows, tells me that even those of us in the church, many quietly struggle to see the message of Jesus as truly relevant and compelling for our actual lives, for our Monday morning lives, for our getting a barrage of email lives, for I'm up in the middle of the night trying to put my toddler back to sleep lives, for I just got some terrible news from a loved one lives. And yet, the true Jesus of scripture is nothing but compelling. On page after page of the four biographies of the life of Jesus that we call the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, on page after page of these books of Scripture, we see people that you would never expect to be drawn towards the God of the universe, compelled by Jesus, drawn to Jesus. People that the religious folks say are the wrong kind of people coming to Jesus because they're compelled. It's like Peter blurts out in John chapter 6, after some things have gone wrong, a lot of people have walked away from Jesus, he blurts out, where else can we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. The true Jesus of Scripture is nothing but compelling. So, how do we see life with Jesus as more than just an abstraction? 
How do we see it as relevant, as compelling to our actual lives? How do we see Jesus himself as relevant and compelling to our actual life, our Monday morning life, our up in the middle of the night putting the kid down life, our getting terrible news life, our struggling through the normal day in and day out trenches of adult life life? Well, our passage this morning in Matthew chapter 8, 1 to 4, is going to show us this episode in the life of Jesus that I think shows us that we see Jesus' kind of compassion is not just generic, it's personal. And we're looking at these snapshots of compassion in the life of Jesus, and I think what we see here is that Jesus' kind of compassion, passion that com- compassion that comes to us, that we receive from him, and compassion that he wants to work out through us to the world around us, it's not just generic, it's personal. Because think about what Jesus is doing in this passage. Jesus is healing a man with leprosy. In the ancient world, like today, but much more so in the ancient world, Leprosy was a condition, a disease that was very visible, obviously. It's a skin condition. It's a skin disease where your skin is slowly rotting, and it's visible from the outside. And so you're wearing what you're going through physically as a badge for the world to see. And the response, because it's highly infectious, would be to have put people outside of the city, to live outside of community in isolation, away from everyone. And so here's a man who's struggling physically, yes, but he's a man who's been in isolation away from people, a man who's not just untouchable, but has been untouched for years, maybe decades. And when Jesus heals this man, Jesus heals him. He cleanses him. He cleanses the man who had been cast out and isolated, the man who had not been touched in years, maybe decades, by coming in close and touching him. He didn't just stand from a distance and and say, yes, I'm willing, be cleansed. He comes in close and he touches the untouched man and says, I'm willing, be cleansed. You you read through the life of Jesus and you'll see that Jesus heals many people and he almost never heals someone the same way twice. It's always individualized. And what we see here is Jesus' personal way of healing the untouched man was to touch him. This man had a presenting need that the world could see. He needed to be healed. He had a hidden need that was personal, that maybe only he knew, which is that he hadn't been seen, not really seen in who knows how long. And here is Jesus, God become one of us, and he sees him. He meets him where he really needed to be met. And as we think about how that applies for how we relate to God, or more pointedly, how God relates to us, I think we're going to see a few things, and that's how we'll spend the rest of our time. I think we're going to see is that Jesus sees and meets us in our most personal need. And Jesus invites us to see and meet others with the good news for their most personal needs. And finally, that Jesus sees and meets the need beneath all our needs. So Jesus sees and meets us in our most personal needs. He invites us to see and meet others with good news for their most personal needs. And Jesus sees and meets the need beneath all of our needs. So we'll start with Jesus sees and meets us in our most personal need. Like I said, Jesus reaches out and touches the untouched man, the man who had been in isolation. He meets him not just in the obvious, but also in the hidden and the personal, the place where he really needed to be, uh, needed to be met. And um, there's a world of implications for this here. I think one of the most 
pressing. One of, one of the things that we need to see most, just as a starting point, is that the good news of Jesus is not merely a theological formula for solving an abstract problem. It's good news for the real longings of the human heart. So often when we talk about life with Jesus, it's in these abstractions. It's in church speak. It's about addressing needs that maybe aren't the needs that we feel most personally. And to be sure, there is a story that we're living into that, that has components to it that may not be the specific thing that we feel the, the greatest burden on, the greatest ache of our souls, the greatest pain point right now today. And yet still, the good news of Jesus is not just a theological formula for an abstract problem. It's good news for the real longings of the human heart, the things that really touch your soul and my soul. In our longing for love, there's no greater love than the personal love that the holy God of the universe, the one who dreamt up the Milky Way and the Pacific Ocean and Yosemite, has for you specifically. In our longing for meaning, the, the, the longing for our life to mean something, for there to be purpose in our lives, there's an invitation by grace to live in the purpose that we were really created for, glorifying God by enjoying him forever and partnering with him in his mission in the world as we come to experience him more and more. And this is not just the meaning that we were created for. It's also a meaning that no circumstance in life can take away. Our performance, how we do and the things that are important to us are going to arise and they're going to fall. Relationships are going to be up and down. Our own moral goodness is going to ebb and flow. But enjoying God by grace, being invited into relationship with him and partnering with him as a result is a meaning in life that no circumstance in life can take from us. He can work it out in everything. For our longing for a secure identity... The unconditional love of God in Christ is a source of self that can't be shaken by the opinions of others. It can't be shaken by the, our opinions of ourselves. It can't be shaken by the ups and downs of our performance. It's secure. In our longing for justice, our longing for the rights of the world to be set right, the redemptive plan in God in which a day is coming when Jesus will come again to renew heaven and earth and in which Jesus has paid for all of our sin and our injustice now in his cross by his grace gives us the resources to work toward righting wrongs without being self-righteous, without being full of condemnation. Because we are recipients of mercy, we can step forward into righting wrongs in the world without judging those that we think are responsible for those wrongs. We can move forward to bring actual change in the world without being those who condemn and judge others, all while we wait for the end of the story in which justice is finally done. And in our longing for hope, Finding ourselves in God's story, in which God is working out redemption and restoration and renewal, and in which there is a sure destination to the story of history, where there's an end to sin, and an end to suffering, and an end to injustice, and an end to death, in which any who really, by grace, want God will be with him forever in a world that was all that it was meant to be, but even sweeter for having been redeemed. That's a hope that nothing can take away because it rests on the sure promise of God who does not fail. My point is that the good news of Jesus is not just an abstract formula for abstract problems. It's good news for the real longings of the human heart. 
It's good news for what we really long for out of life as we find our story in Jesus' story. But secondly, we see that it's not just about meeting these longings of our heart. It's not just about, it's not just that the good news of Jesus connects with things that we actually really long for, not just abstract problems that don't seem personal to us. We also see that as Jesus meets us with compassion, we see that Jesus' love for and restoring presence with you is not generic, it's personal. In other words, when we, when we talk about the love of God, we're not talking about this kind of broad, general, kind of blanket thing that's true for all people and all times. And so it's not really personal. It's just this thing that God just kind of loves everybody. It's a big blanket that covers everybody. We're talking about a God who personally loves you, who personally knows you, who knows you better than you know yourself and loves you. And not just loves you in the sense that like, ah, like, I'm, you know, we're cool. But really loves you, delights in you enjoys you, wants relationship with you. It's not just generic, it's personal. You know, we come to a passage like this, and um, this, is, this is one of those passages of Scripture that if you're coming to it um, cynically, it kind of just seems neat and tidy, right? It's like this man's got a need, he cries out to Jesus for the need, the need is met. And if you're in a season of grief, um, the pain of prayers not being answered the way that you would have hoped they would have been answered was something that was really important. Not just something trivial, but something that was close to your heart. Um, You can come to a passage like this and it can feel deflating, even discouraging. Uh, In seasons of my life, I've come to passages, this passage specifically and others like it, uh, where I've been in seasons of grief and it provoked anger why wasn't it like this for the thing that I asked for? Why wasn't it like this for the pain that I feel? You know, when, um, when uh, Becca, my wife, when her, her dad uh, passed away a couple years ago, uh, he, he passed away in the midst of a battle with cancer. And uh, there was a, a several-year stretch where I've never seen a community of people pray more fervently for someone to be healed. It was the, mo- it was the season of most united uh, spread out, broad, fervent prayer for someone to be healed that I've ever seen in my life. And God chose not to answer those prayers the way that we were hoping. Um, and so there was the grief of sorting through Becca's dad passing in this incredibly profound loss. And also wrestling through with, Lord, why? Why, of all times, that you could have healed someone? Why not the time that we were crying out for you to do it? Why not the time where there was a huge community of people crying out over years for you to do it? And you can come to a passage like this and it's just like, that just feels deflating. But what this passage shows us in the simple episode of Jesus meeting a real need is his heart of compassion. And his heart of compassion in the simple is the same heart of compassion in the complex and the messy and the painful. And while that doesn't answer all of our questions, it does remind us what the, what the God we're wrestling with is like. He's compassionate. And his compassion isn't just generic, it's personal. When he allows things that we don't understand or we don't like hurt deeply, 
It's filtered through the heart of a God who has personal compassion. Do you know that Jesus knows and really cares about you? About your story, about your pain, about what makes your heart come alive. He doesn't just have a blanket compassion, a blanket love for all people and all times, and it's just kind of generic and out there and not really for us personally. He knows you. He loves you. He has compassion for you. And he has compassion for where you feel the need for compassion today. He has compassion for the way that you'll feel the need for compassion tomorrow and the next day and the next day and the next day. We have a Savior who sees and a Savior who knows and a Savior who loves. And he's a Savior who cares about what really makes our heart tick. You know, one of the things I, I love about having a teaching team model where there's a few of us on, on a team that get to, that get to uh, teach God's word here on, on our Sunday gatherings is that we get to hear God's word preached and come under God's word preached from the perspective of a few different teachers, which means that from the perspective of a few different gifting sets and stories and personalities and passions, and it's all God's word, and it's all true for all times and all people when rightly understood, but it's coming through these different personalities and these different perspectives, and so we get to see these different things that connect with different people, that touch different people as, the heart, as God is revealing his truth to us. So, for example... If you pay really close attention to James, which you should, if you pay really close attention to him and listen to themes that come up in his teaching over time, one of the things, one of the consistent beats that plays over and over again in his teaching is that uh, James will frequently show us how truths from all over scripture give us the resources to lay aside our anxieties and our worries and to rest non-anxiously in the care of our Father. It's something that comes out in his teaching really consistently. Not every time, but it's a consistent theme in his teaching ministry is that point of application. Why? Because it's close to his heart. It's something that God speaks to him personally. It's a, it's a truth of scripture that he has come to internalize and is in the process of internalizing and experiencing personally. It's personal to him. If you listen to me, and I don't know, I go on and on and on, so maybe you don't. There's like something interesting back in the wall behind me, or you're at the beach and there's dolphins jumping, and you'd be very excused for tuning out for a little bit. But if you listen closely to me, you'll frequently hear an application point of how knowing God in Christ meets the deepest needs, the deepest longings of our souls, and how life partnered with Jesus in his mission is the sweet spot of a life of meaning and significance. In fact, I literally just made that point like five minutes ago, right? Why? Because it's a truth that's a set of truths that's close to my heart. It's what God speaks to me personally. It's something that in my story of coming to faith in Christ and the grace that I've received from him is a way that he has ministered and rescued me personally. The grace of Jesus, the restoring presence of Jesus, the love of Jesus, everything that God is for us in Christ is not just generic, it's personal. His compassion is personal. His compassion for us right now is personal. And if we want to be personal with God, he wants to be personal with us. If we want relationship with the God of the universe, if we want to relate to God not as an abstraction or a theory that's impersonal, but as a being to be known, not as a peer to be known, but as a being, our king creator who reveals himself as father, a being to be known, we have to ask ourselves, 
What longings and aches and pains of our soul do we need the Lord to meet us with compassion now? Or whenever we're asking that question, where do we need him personally now? Because his compassion is personal. He wants to be personal. How do we need him personally? Another thing we see in this passage is we come to experience compassion from God in Jesus is that he works out compassion through us as we follow him. Second point would be that Jesus invites us to see and meet others with good news for their most personal needs. You know, one of the things about following Jesus is what we see in the life of Jesus is for us, but it's also to be internalized in us and then given out to the world around us. It's compassion for us. It's also compassion that Jesus wants to work through us. This is at the very heart of what it means to follow Jesus. Jesus, when he invited his first disciples to follow them, Matthew 4, 19, he said, come follow me. In other words, in this case, it was literally walk around with me, live your life with me, and I will make you become fishers of men. It was an invitation not just to believe something, but to adopt a new way of life in response to having encountered the Savior. And this is, uh, you know, for many, we think about compassion in particular, and we think about what it means to live a life with compassion, and it's like, okay, here comes the twist. It's like, receive compassion. Now it's like, all right, here's what you got to do. Buckle up, partner. Like, white knuckle it, and here's the list of things that you need now to incorporate in your life. I'm glad you received compassion. Wasn't that nice? Now here's everything you have to do as soon as you leave this room. For many of us, this can just feel like one more item or one more list of items to put onto our to-do list, and we're already tired. Our life is already full. And it's just like, ah, okay, here's the like, I got to do stuff part. Fine, fine, I know it's in there. Give it to me. But here's what I want us to see as we follow Jesus. What I want us to see is that Jesus' invitation to live with compassion is not an invitation to put a bunch, of more, bunch more stuff on our to-do list. It's an invitation to live and to navigate life in a new way. Not more things to do, although it will result in a life differently lived if we really internalize it. But it's to learn Jesus' way of life. And Jesus' way of life, he tells us in Matthew 11, is a, light, is a life with an easy yoke and a light burden. Maybe familiar with this famous passage in Matthew 11 where Jesus says, Come to me, all ye who are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. But listen to what's sandwiched right in the middle of that beautiful promise and invitation of Jesus. This is uh, Matthew 11, verses 28 to 30. He says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, and here's what's sandwiched in the middle of all this, and learn from me. For I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. What Jesus wants to work in us as he invites us to have compassion the way that he has compassion is not a burdensome list of rules that we now have to follow. It's to learn from him an easy yoke and a light burden. And having compassion the way he has compassion counterintuitively to the way that, a lot, that we might think of what it means to follow Jesus because we've so internalized this performance, I keep rules way of interacting with God. Counterintuitively, living with compassion is part of Jesus' easy yoke. It's part of his light burden. His way of life is not something we have to pile on top of ourselves to 
to you know, check off the box that we did it or earn our Bible box so we can you know, get more goodies in heaven or something like that. It's the sweet spot. It's the rested life of Jesus. It's the easy yoke and the light burden of Jesus. And so as we learn from Jesus, as we learn from our rabbi, we're invited to see and interact with the world, interact with people around us the way that he does. It's an invitation to see people the way that Jesus sees people and to interact with them as he would. It's to see, to put it in the words of the the great Enlightenment thinker Blaise Pascal, it's to see that there's a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of every man and every woman that can only be satisfied by our creator God. And to see that vacuum, to see people's real needs, where do you need the good news of Jesus? Not just the theological formula good news of Jesus, but the real personal good news of Jesus that, yes, covers needs that we don't feel in any given moment, but is also personal to what we need right now. The question before us is, will we learn from our rabbi to have compassion like he has compassion? Will we slow down enough to be present and listen enough to really see people and be bold enough to speak or act when the time is right? Because what Jesus is, is, what we see in Jesus in this passage is Jesus is slowed down enough, he's unhurried enough that when the need comes before him, when it's presented to him, he actually has time to be present to it. That doesn't mean that we have to, that in any given time, any point in our lives, we'll need to drop everything immediately, but we do need to live our lives with enough flexibility to be open to that possibility, to slow down enough to be present. He listens enough to really see people. How do we know what people's real needs are? How do we know where they, where they need the good news of Jesus? We listen. Jesus' people need to be those who are slow to speak and quick to listen, to really hear people well enough to see their real needs, to see where they specifically need the good news of Jesus, to not just treat them as a generic cog in a machine, but to see them as people made in the image of God, who have real aches and real pains and real places in their story where the good news of Jesus really is good news. We have to listen. And we have to be bold enough to speak or act when the time is right. You know, it's, it's one thing to see someone's need. Jesus meets needs. And we need to be those who, when the time is right, when we've listened, when we've been present, who speak or act in a way that brings good news to the real needs of people that Jesus loves. Because Jesus meets us with compassion that's not just generic, it's personal. But Jesus also wants to work that kind of compassion out through us to the world around us. And finally, and we'll close with this, Jesus sees and meets us in the need beneath all of our needs. Now this little passage episode in the life of Jesus closes in a way that might seem strange for us as modern readers. It's actually how Jesus ends a lot of his interactions with people he's healed. It ends like this in verse 4. It says, Jesus heals him, cleanses him, and Jesus says to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. This might seem strange. It's like, why... Jesus has just radically done a miracle in this person's life. He's changed their life forever. Like, why this, what seems like pretty strange and ending? Like, don't say anything to anyone. 
go to the temple, offer your sacrifice, offer it as a proof that uh, Moses commanded. What the heck is going on? Well, first of all, we see that Jesus is tapping into the story of God's people in the Old Testament, This uh, what, what we call the Old Covenant, the, the terms at which God is relating to his people at that time and that place in history, all preparing us for the coming of Jesus. And part of that are what we would call uh, ceremony, cleansing, purity, ceremonial laws. And so uh, there are these various things that were associated with death in the ancient world and decay. And there were these uh, set of ceremonies and rituals set up to um, offer cleansing over these issues or separation uh, over these impure, unclean things from the presence of God. So a person with leprosy uh, under the old covenant would not have been able to enter into the temple and worship, not as a a way to uh, demonize anybody, any individual, but as a way of teaching God's people the holiness of God, the otherness of God, the need for God to do something for his people that we could enter into his presence. Now, at the coming of Jesus... The finished work, death, resurrection, sending of the Holy Spirit that that Jesus has sent to us, uh, that is no longer the way that God's people relate to God. They're now irrelevant. They've all been fulfilled in Jesus. The bridge uh, has, has been laid between us and God. The barrier has been crossed. There's now nothing separating anyone who has come into relationship with God in Christ from the presence of God. Jesus is all about to accomplish all of this very, very soon. So there's a natural question Why why is Jesus still going on about this? This is all going to become irrelevant really, really soon in the story. If you're just, you know, it's, it's, you know, not that soon in terms of the actual timeline. It's maybe a year or two after this. But in terms of reading the story, it's just like a couple pages later, all of this is irrelevant. So why is Jesus still going on about this? Why tell this man to go through all this ceremonial process that will soon be very irrelevant? And why does Jesus tell him not to say anything? Wouldn't that be big news? Like you'd think if there's a savior coming to save, that kind of word of mouth would go a long way, right? Like, hey, I met the Messiah. His name's Jesus. He healed me. You should probably listen to him. You'd think that Jesus would want that kind of press. You'd think that's the kind of thing Jesus would want getting around. So what is the deal? Why is Jesus calling this man to go through a process that is soon going to be irrelevant? Why is he asking him to keep quiet in a way that would seem counterproductive to the mission of God? Here's the deal. The deal is that Jesus is setting us up and Matthew, the biblical writer, is showing us that while Jesus' touch of compassion flows right from his heart, and while he gladly meets us exactly where we're at with where we feel the most personal need, he also came to meet the need beneath all of our needs. He came to die for our sin so that we might be reconciled and restored to God. Because these ceremonial laws, the purity rituals, were all about preparing us for the reality that there's something that God is going to need to do to bridge the gap between us and him. They all point to what Jesus would accomplish on his cross. And Jesus asking this man to keep quiet is not because Jesus is not wanting others to know about him. It's because Jesus is keeping the focus on his mission going to the cross, showing us what the kingdom of God is like along the way, but not wanting to get the people distracted on trying to make him king before he has gone through the cross, the crucible of paying for your sin and my sin that he might be enthroned to king, ascended to the right hand of the father forever. Jesus is preparing us for where the story is going. He's preparing us for God who became one of us, taking my sin and your sin 
on his shoulders on the cross, letting it crush him, that we might be forgiven of every sin, past, present, and future. That the barrier that stands between us and God, the barrier of our sin that holds us back from the presence of a holy God would be dealt with forever that we could be reconciled and restored to him. And when we see the cross, when we see what Jesus is preparing us for and hinting at here at the end of our episode here, we see a God whose compassion for us is personal to where we need it. But it's also personal to us in the need that's beneath all of our needs. Our need to be reconciled and restored to our Father. We see our Father who loves us. Loves us so much that he reaches out, reaches out so far that he's willing to let it hurt. He's willing to die in our place, bearing the weight of our sin, my sin, and your sin. And when we see that, that's where it gets personal. We see a God who has skin in the game with our deepest need, hanging on the cross for me and for you. But as we close, we have to ask, what does any of that actually look like in real life? What does encountering that reality even look like in real life? And I'm going to invite um, a member of our church family, Fadi, to share his story here. He's going to tell us, Fadi, you can come on up. He's going to tell us how he's encountered the personal compassion of God and Jesus. And so, Fadi, would you, um, would you share your story with us? Hi, everybody. Uh, I'm honored to be here to speak in front of you all today. And I was given the task to tell you my story in about eight minutes. And for all of you that don't know me, I love to tell stories, but I can also go on tangents and interweave many different stories. So to stick to the prompt, I wrote it all down. Uh, and we'll be here for eight minutes, and that's about it. So I'm going to read it out loud to you, uh, so bear with me. Yalla, imshi, imshi which in Arabic translates to, let's go, keep walking. These words became the defining words that changed the trajectory of the rest of my life. I was born in Baghdad, Iraq. The second Gulf War had just ended the year prior, and many parts of the city of Baghdad were blown into pieces. And to make matters worse, I was born into a Roman Catholic family that suffered numerous religious persecutions in a 98% Islamic country. Calling it a hostile war zone became an understatement. I was six years old when the United States reinvaded Iraq in 1998 in search of weapons of mass destruction, and the nightly bombings that I once luckily dodged as a little baby, being born a year after the war, came down pounding throughout many nights of my life, living there as a little boy. Baghdad was being blown to oblivion. Every single bomb was like a tidal wave of nausea that ripped throughout our household. The questions that raced through my head, would our family still be alive the next day? How much more of the city would disappear? My parents watched in horror as their past was wiped off from the physical plane. There was little that was said during the evenings, but I will never forget the deafening silence. So much was said without words, and if feelings in that room could talk, they would cry hard and loud, and tears would become like a tidal wave that would flood our entire neighborhood. Stay in a war torn country and spend every day fearing for your life or leave in hope for a better life elsewhere. Yalla imshi imshi were the words that my mother used as she was yelling at me in a panic as we were getting in the back of a van in the middle of the night. 
That was the night that my mother and I fled our home in hope of crossing the Iraqi border safely. To this day, I still remember the vivid image of my mother putting a blanket over the both of us as we got closer to the border crossing where we were hiding for our lives. Confused, shocked, and terrified were the emotions that were rushing through my head. Even though we were the only in the car for about six hours, to that little boy, it felt like days. We safely made it to Jordan, Amman, and from there we quickly flew to Spain and awaited my father as we stayed behind to, as he stayed behind to get our life together. Some days I can't tell if it was the greatest gift or heart-crushing punishment to be born during a time of war. War doesn't even really begin to describe the story, but it is a start. I first learned about death before I learned about life, and perhaps only understood what it meant to really live because of how fast and how easily I felt life slip away into nothingness. Sand into dust wiped off like a smooth piece of marble. Poof. Did their lives ever even exist to begin with? Fast forward into my story, I am now living in the United States in sunny San Diego. While I could now go to bed every night without the fear of not walk, waking up the next day, I quickly learned that safety came at the cost of struggling to integrate into a foreign, unwelcoming community. Starting elementary school as the foreign kid was far from easy. I was bullied, ridiculed, and treated like an outcast. Nothing I did or said would, even, would ever impress any of my classmates, or at least it felt that way. I was in the fourth grade when the bombings of the Twin Towers in New York City happened on 9-11. And while I was not present in New York City, the terror I felt that day haunted me for a very long time. Aren't you Iraqi? A classmate of mine with a smug, mean look, undefining way gave me the chills as I responded back. Yeah, I'm Iraqi. He triumphantly walked away only to come back with other classmates. I can't believe your parents bombed those buildings. Why did they do that? My dad told me about bad people like you. I went from shock to surprise to anger and then to fear in a matter of seconds. All of those bad people, who was he talking about? Was he referring to my mom and dad who sacrificed their entire lives just to get me to safety and build me a better future? Or was he referring to my mother's sisters who would come over almost every day for afternoon tea and would sneak me candy and treats while my mother wasn't looking? Or was he referring to the, my uncles who were working three jobs a day just to make ends meet for their families? Surely he was confused and mistaken. These are really not bad people. But what if he was right? How did I know? I had to ask my family. I had to ask my mom and dad why they would attack these buildings. Clearly there was a logical reason for it. As I went home that day to ask my parents this intense and confronting question, Tears immediately filled their eyes as they had to sat, sit me down and explain to me all about the historical context of conflicts that were a part of our land and how so many things were being misconstrued. From that day on, I knew I was different and I was never going to be treated fairly or equally in the eyes of my peers ever again. My head was spinning by the end of the day and the nausea that overcame it, but this time it stayed in my belly and stayed dormant for many years reviving itself and awakening when anything triggered a trauma from those moments. A word, a phrase, and everything in between. I didn't have the right toolkit to communicate what was happening, so anytime a classmate brought up the war, I sheeplessly looked at them with a puzzled look on my face, trying to make it all go away, 
but would continue to claim that my family in Iraq had done nothing wrong. The fear of the unknown and my inability to make the sadness go away made me feel powerless. I couldn't take away my family's sadness, and I learned how to quiet my own and walk on eggshells around my own emotional world. At first, I did everything I could to educate my classmates around what was really happening in Iraq, but it was fruitless. I failed to win anybody over. My emotions had polarities. I would go from feeling withdrawn to feeling angry at humanity. Once I realized my expectations fell on deaf ears at the age of nine, I decided to keep my mouth shut about the subject of what was happening in my, to my family, and I started focusing on obtaining achievements as the primary way to shutting down the bullying and the ridicule. I wanted so desperately to blend into the crowd and no one could get mad at an overachiever. It was then that I would create a lightness around intense and difficult conversations and tread lightly around discourse. Obtaining achievements allowed me to stand out from the crowd and storytelling became a form for me to charm people. I liked how all pre-existing narratives became secondary once an emotional connection and a common bond were involved. But the story that I would tell myself about those days, being born in a war-torn country and the aftermath of 9-11, would define me for many years to come. It became a narrative that would change my perception and alter everything I understood about people and humanity as I saw myself in this world. In full disclosure, a part of me never wanted to share this story because it's much easier to melt into the crowd and stay silent rather than open up and share the nakedness and residue of trauma and marginalization. But even if one person hears the story and feels the resonance, then it was all worth it. So how does this all tie back to Jesus? Well, when Taylor first asked me to share my story during the sermon, I became a basket case of emotions. While I was humbled and honored to be chosen, I had no idea what part of my story would resonate and what you all would actually want to hear. Also, I was given the task to do this in eight minutes, and that was an undertaking of its own. So, as you start to get to know me a little better, you'll quickly learn that I love to research, and I will dig for hours to get the historical context right, and then be able to influence the story that I write. If we go back to the first five chapters in the book of Matthew, we are learning about Jesus' upside-down kingdom during the Sermon on the Mount. And the key takeaway there is that Jesus brings the reality of his new kingdom into the day-to-day lives of ordinary people, into the lives of hurting and broken people, and he saves them through the acts of grace and his divine power. And we also learn that one can only experience the power of Jesus' grace by following him and becoming his disciple. And then I started researching leprosy because I frankly had no idea what it truly entailed besides that it was a pretty deadly and nasty disease. And here's what I learned. Physically, leprosy was a skin and flesh disorder that brought about the literal decay of a person's body while they were still alive. But what really stood out to me in my research was that socially, the leper also suffered anguish. Leprosy was highly contagious. It had no unknown cure. And lepers were, were ostracized. They were forbidden to have personal contact with anyone, including their family and friends. From the day they were first declared unclean, they were cut off from all society. All of the relationships and everything they had worked for was taken from them. Their sense of self was stolen from them. Their reputation and name were erased by their affliction. Their identity became their disease. Lepers were stigmatized and feared. And then it hit me. And I finally could see why Taylor asked me to join him in today's message. 
While I may not have been carrying around a physical disease for most of my life, what I have been carrying around that made me feel so connected to this leper were the labels that were placed upon me by my classmates and everyone I came in contact with going forward. I felt the shame and ridicule. I felt the isolation and the marginalization. And most importantly, I felt like an outcast for a very long time. And for my family, their entire past was taken from them. Their sense of self was stolen from them they, the minute they decided to leave their home country. Although my, life, although my life came with a constant struggle, and boy, am I missing a laundry list here. Remember, eight minutes. Jesus met me where I was at in every single one of these moments. But most importantly, he never appeared the same way in each of my circumstances. Rather, he showed up personally in many different ways every single time. Jesus restored in me my love for humanity. Whenever I would see a person do a random act of kindness, Jesus showed me hope for a better future. Or when I would watch in the news allies of those being marginalized stand up and protest with them side by side, shoulder to shoulder, Jesus showed me redemption and hope for restoration. And the list goes on and on. Jesus kept showing up in my life, and he met me with so much grace. The lesson I have learned over the years have remained close and relevant to my life. I have acquired a lifestyle of discipline and internalized the drive for self-improvement for myself and for others around me. I have gained an appreciation for the complexities and nuances of diverse cultures. I understand the importance of having both a sound body and mind and to stop suppressing my emotions. I understand that to possess a passion and personal interest in something, to think for myself is just as important. But most of all, my struggles have forced me to inspire others to stand up for themselves and stop allowing the labels that get placed on them by others define who they are because I will no longer stand for being a label. You see, the story of the leper doesn't just demonstrate Jesus' healing power. It also teaches us that God is concerned about us and will reach out and touch us in times of need. It also reminds us that we should be willing to reach out and care for all of those who are shunned by society or outcasts today. By asking to be made clean, the leper was not just asking to be cured from the physical affliction of his disorder. He was asking to be restored to the community among his family and friends. The healing of the disease was the means to that end. Jesus understood the leper and was moved by his request. He stretched out his hand and touched him saying, I am willing, be cleansed. The manner in which he chose to heal this man was significant. He could have simply uttered a word or waved a hand and the leper would have been healed. Rather, Jesus touched him. Christ did not regard the traditions of ceremonial cleanliness as more important than the man's brokenness. But by personally touching the leper, Jesus validated his humanity and restored him to the community of human fellowship once again. And this is one of many redemptive stories that keeps me alive, keeps me motivated, and allows me to anchor my hope on Jesus and his gracious restorative nature. Um, Fadi, thank you for sharing uh, a, a small snapshot of your story, eight minutes. Um, we're really honored by your vulnerability and honored by you talking about things that are hard to talk about. Um, it takes a lot of guts to not just stand in front of a group, but to stand in front of your group and talk about something that's really personal. And we're really, really honored that you would do that. And um, 
in your story, we see our story. Our story might be so different than yours, um, but seeing how Jesus meets you personally reminds us how he meets us personally too. And, um, well, the communion's going around now. Uh, we're celebrating in just a moment, so go ahead and hold on to the elements. We'll take it together in a second. But before we do, we're just going to pray for Fadi. And I want to invite you, just as a gesture of blessing and solidarity and community, to extend a hand, um, not because it does anything, but because uh, we're a people who are for each other. And uh, we're going to posture that with our bodies. So would you just extend a hand as we, as we pray for Fadi and bless him, um, thanking God for him. Lord, we're so, um, we're so grateful for Fadi. We're grateful for what you've done in his life. And um, God, you love him. You love him even more than he knows. And uh, you know him even more than he knows himself. And we're so grateful for what we see in him, um, that you have met him in his areas of personal need. Uh, in this story um, that for many of us uh, is far beyond our understanding to know what it's like to grown up, grow up in a, in a country torn apart by war, um, to have to flee and find a new home and integrate into a new place in a different culture and to be treated as different. Um, so many of us, that's not our story. For others, it is. And uh, we're grateful, God, that you meet each of us in, um, in the ways that we need. Thank you for your compassion. And uh, would you bless Fadi? We pray that you would guard his heart and his mind. I pray that the unconditional love of God for him and Jesus would be so real that he would uh, have a deep sense of your presence with him and your love for him. And uh, we bless him. We thank you for him as part of our spiritual family. His story is a part of our story. And so we say, praise God. Uh, it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 Thanks, bro. Well, we're going to close here by um, celebrating the Lord's Supper. And it's in this sacred symbol of the death and resurrection of Jesus for your sin, for my sin, and my place in your place, that we see the personal nature of the love of God, that he enters in and takes our needs, our sin, the ways that we've lived as if we were his enemies, and he takes it in himself. He takes it on his own back and on the cross. And so we take this in, in remembrance of Jesus, and on the night Jesus was betrayed, um, Jesus took the bread, and he said, this is my body that's been broken for you. And so we take now in remembrance of the broken body of Jesus for us. Let's take in remembrance of him. And Jesus took the cup and he said, this is my blood poured out for you. Every sin, past, present, and future, is paid for in full, that our deepest need to be reconciled to our Father is met. And so let's take in remembrance of him. Lord, we love you. Uh, we're so grateful for the way that you love us. Grateful that your love for us is strong and your love for us is personal. Right now, we just make space... Um, for any of us that feel something present of mind, something, an area that we need the compassion of God in. Um, if there's something that just as we've been seeing God's word, hearing Fadi's story, there's something that's provoked in our hearts, that, an area that we need God's compassion, an area that we need him to meet us. Let's just take some space right now, a moment of quiet, and ask him to meet us in that way.
Just say, Lord, this is what's going on. Uh, I need you. Lord, thank you that you see us and you're with us and your compassion for us is personal. Would you teach us um, to live with your easy yoke and light burden to have compassion for others too? That's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, that's our gathering for this morning. Um, On the 19th, we are going to be moving our worship gathering from this room to our room upstairs. And our kids are going to be using this room in addition to the room next door. We're very excited about that. Um, We're excited for a few reasons. We're excited because it's going to make more space for our kids who are growing in number rapidly. Um, And also because it's going to to make more room. There's more seats available for um, neighbors, friends, coworkers, people in the South Bay to join us for worship as well. We feel like God's doing a really special thing and, and we're excited about it. So you can look forward to that. Um, Other than that, that is all we have for this morning. So uh, go have a wonderful week. Enjoy and extend the compassion of Jesus to the world around you. Have an awesome week. Love you guys.